Well, please turn your Bibles to Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. We're going to look at the first 30 verses of Genesis 29. Remember, Jacob is fleeing his brother Esau. And in our story last week, we saw Jacob's dream and God's promise of provision for him. And now we encounter Jacob as he journeys to Haran and arrives there and meets his family. And so if you would, uh, please stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Genesis 29, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see. Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving with me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female daughter, or his female servant Billah, 
to his daughter Rachel to be your servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study it together. We would ask, as always, for your grace on us as we study it. We pray that we would have hearts that are receptive to your care, your discipline, your instruction. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was looking for a phone charger. It seems that I spend a large portion of my life looking for phone chargers, certainly a lot larger portion of my life than I feel that I should be looking for phone chargers. And it also seems to me, and and, uh, this probably isn't fair to say this morning because my uh, children don't have a chance to rebut what I'm saying here, but it it seems to me like a, a large percentage of the time that I'm looking for phone chargers it's my children's fault, okay? They have taken a phone charger somewhere and not told me, not returned it, and so I feel that, you know, at times as I'm looking for these phone chargers that my children are to blame for this intrusion on my time. And so a few weeks ago as I'm, I'm looking for this phone charger, it's uh, Saturday night, it's about, I don't know, it's getting close to 10, and, and I'm kind of uh, not excited about the fact that I can't find this phone charger that I'd placed on a bookshelf in a special place to keep it away from my children. I'm not happy that I can't find it. And so I, I go upstairs and I, I talk to my children and I, I call to them. They haven't quite fallen asleep yet. And I, I said, uh, children, children whom I love so much, where's my phone charger? And they all said they hadn't touched it, which is what they always say. And um, where I said, well, uh, children, uh, I have an idea. Why don't you help me look for it? And so they get out of bed, and we all begin to look for this phone charger together. And as we look, I feel like it'd be helpful for me to offer some instruction to them. So I mentioned to them the importance of taking good care of people's things, and we talk as we're looking for this phone charger about how expensive phone chargers are and how I've purchased so many of these things, and we talk about um, their, their futures and food that we may not be able to purchase because I'm having to buy phone chargers all the time. Uh, we talk about the general breakdown of society as it relates to phone chargers. I talk about the souls of people at Bethany Community Church that are in peril because I'm not getting my sleep right now. And it was about that time that Whitney found the phone charger. And, and where she found it is not really all that germane to the story. <laughs> but I would argue my children could have been a lot more gracious uh, when she found it in my coat pocket in the closet. Actually, they were, they were very gracious. They were sarcastic, but they were very gracious. You know. It was not a very fun feeling to, to find that I was the villain in the story. You know, there's that sinking realization like, oh no, I did it. And it's never fun, right? It's never fun when we find to our surprise that we're the villain in the story. We're the one who's made the mistake. It is much easier when going through a difficult time to, to feel like you're the person who has been put upon. You, you are the, the put-upon father who is instructing his children. Uh, you're the, the kind and gracious spouse with the, the spouse who's having a bad attitude. You're the, the co-worker who is having to endure the, the unreasonable demands of a boss who just isn't fair. It's much easier to see ourselves in that light than to see ourselves as the person who's doing the wrong. When people do bad things to us, when bad people do bad things to us, 
it's a lot easier to turn our gaze outward and to think about them and their failures and how we're going through a tough circumstance because of them. But here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. I want you to, to turn your, your, your gaze inward, not in an unhealthy way, but in an introspective way. And I want us to look at this, this text together, and what I want to encourage you very gently with is to suggest that you consider the idea that perhaps, perhaps, as you are going through difficult circumstances in your life, perhaps God is disciplining you. Not every hard circumstance is the result of God's discipline. Not every hard circumstance we find ourselves in is God's discipline. But what I want you to think about is what if, what if the situation you find yourself in today or in this time of your life that's difficult or some point in the future, what if that is God's hand of discipline on you? In fact, if you would, you could turn to the book of Hebrews. I want to read just a little bit of uh, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to read Hebrews 12 with you, and I want Hebrews 12 to be kind of a lens through which we look at this story in which God, I believe, is disciplining Jacob through a, another scoundrel named Laban, his uncle. And in Hebrews chapter 12, there in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews, beginning really in verse 3, talks about the discipline of the Lord. And we go down in, into verse uh, 5 of Hebrews 12, he begins to quote Proverbs, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And he talks about the earthly fathers we had who disciplined us. And he says in verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the, peace, uh, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so he says discipline by God is a good thing. As God corrects us and disciplines us, it shows us that we're his children. And he goes on and com contrasts that with Esau. Verse 14, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And so God's, God's discipline in our life is a means by which God prepares us for eternity with him. God's discipline in us makes us more holy, makes us prepared for eternity. And he says in verse 15, see to it that no one fall, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, what does this mean? God disciplines his children. Jacob, as the one whom God loves, receives God's discipline. God continues to work on Jacob Esau does not receive the discipline of the Lord in the same way, and Esau, Esau fails to repent. At the end of his life, Jacob, reflecting on all that has happened to him, including the story here in Genesis 29 where things go very wrongly for him from his perspective, and he feels the consequences of some of his sin here, Jacob, as he'll look back on his life in, in Genesis 48, he'll say this. He'll say, the God... 
before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. In other words, Jacob, as he looks back on his life, even this circumstance here in Genesis 29, which in 30 and beyond where he's treated very poorly by his father-in-law, he sees God's loving hand of discipline there. The problem for you and for me is that we are often blind to the work that God is, is trying to do in our lives. We often very arrogantly assume that, that God is working on everyone else around us, that God is concerned with the sinners out there, and we fail to see that God loves us and God is using circumstances in our life and people in our life to discipline us, to train us, to, to prepare us for heaven. What I want you to look at and, and, and grasp as we look at this story together this morning is that God is going to lovingly discipline me to prevent me from falling away and to prepare me for heaven. Let me say that again. For those of us who are God's children, God is going to lovingly discipline us to prevent us from falling away and to prepare us for heaven, to prepare us for eternity. That's what God is going to do. God is going to lovingly discipline. Not all suffering is discipline. We'll talk more about that later, but but sometimes it is. And so I want to look at this story with you, and then I want us to, to think about some questions to ask ourselves. And these questions that I'm going to have us ask ourselves are designed to help us discern whether or not a circumstance in our life is God's discipline, and then to also help us to discern how we can learn from that, that time of discipline in our lives. So we'll talk about those questions in a moment, but let's first of all hit some of the highlights of the story here, and we begin in verse 1 of Genesis 29. We, we encounter Jacob on his journey. Remember, Jacob has left his family, he's fleeing from his brother, and he goes to the land of the people of the east. And we see that God's providential hand is in all of this. In Genesis 28, remember we saw that God says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to come back with you. God is going to be with him. God is with him as he travels. And the beginning of the story goes pretty well. The plan that Jacob had and his parents had looks pretty good at first. He said, well, what plan was that? Well, remember, in Genesis 29, uh, or Genesis 27, his mom had a plan. She said, I want you to go away. I want you to go to, to my brother Laban for a while. And that phrase that she uses, a while, means a short period of time. I want you to just kind of go there for a little bit, wait till Esau's anger subsides, and then come back. And his father, Isaac, has a plan. And his father, Isaac, mentions his plan at the beginning of chapter 28. I, I want you to, to go to Laban as well, and I want you to get a wife there. And so there's this plan that Jacob and his parents have, that he'll go to Laban his uh, uncle's home, he will be there for a while, Esau will calm down, he'll find a wife there, and then he'll come back. That's the plan. And things seem to go pretty well at the beginning, right? The plan seems to go very well indeed. He arrives, he comes, and he sees this well, there's a bunch of sheep there, and there's some shepherds, and he approaches the shepherds, he approaches them like a, a, a kinsman, he says, my brothers, how are you, what's going on? And they say, hey, how you doing? And so he talks to them, and they say, do you know Laban? He says, yes, we know Laban, and there's his daughter, everything's going well with him, and he, he makes a really good first impression on his uh, family as he moves this huge stone and allows them to water their flocks. Everything seems to be going according to plan. In fact, it couldn't really be going any better. He arrives, he encounters his uncle, 
His uncle receives him warmly. It says in verse 13, he embraced him, he kissed him, he brought him to, him, to his house. And then he says in verse 14, Laban says these words of, of, of familial greeting and warmth and welcome. Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stays with him. And as you read Genesis 29 here, what does it remind you of? It should remind you of the story we looked at some weeks ago of Abraham's servant encountering Rebekah's family, same family. There's a distant land, there's wells, there's people with animals who need water, there's uh, Laban is in both stories. There's a girl who runs home and reports. There's warm welcome. There, there's a lot of parallels, right? But there's also a significant difference. Do you remember the story? Like, think about, think back as we looked at the story of the servant arriving here and, and, and greeting people and, and trying to find this, this wife for Isaac. And, and then look at what Jacob does here. What's, what's the significant difference in these two stories? I think... One is the presence of God in the earlier story and, and his absence here. In the earlier story, we encounter this, this servant and the servant prays beforehand. And then as he, as, through each step, he rejoices and he praises God. And he continues to, to give the, the praise and the glory to God as God prepares his way before him. And he responds that way in worship. And, and Jacob, we find a lot about Jacob's personality here. I mean, Jacob is an aggressive guy and not aggressive in a very... Uh, like a, like a high character way. He's aggressive in just kind of some weird ways, right? I mean, he arrives and these guys are shepherds. It's their land. And he, he doesn't just offer suggestions. He tells them what to do. He says, look, uh, it's time to water the sheep. Water, go, pasture. He's, he's, he's giving them instructions. He's, he's, he's aggressive. He, he moves the, the stone, which he, as soon as he sees uh, Rachel, he is just a, a go-getter. He is aggressive and we see here just some, some concerning signs, whereas the servant search was marked by trust in God and rejoicing in God. Jacob is, the whole story is about his strength and his ability and his personality, the force of his personality. And again, it, it looks good at the beginning. We come to the end of this first section and things are on track. Things could not be going any better, but Jacob is about to hit a significant block, the person of Laban. And Jacob's plans and mom's plans and dad's plans are about to get totally derailed. Look what happens next. Verses 15 through 30. Laban recognizes the talents of his nephew, and he says, look, you're my kinsman. What wages do you want? You shouldn't serve me for nothing. And we see that Laban has two daughters, and one is, the older one, is, is less attractive than the younger, and we're not quite sure necessarily what it means that Leah was weak of eyes here, but he tells us that Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance, and, and it says in verse 18 that Jacob loved Rachel, and that word love can sometimes describe a physical desire. His desire for her seems very physical, and he says, I want her. This is, this is who I want, and Laban says, okay, well, and, and, and actually, Jacob offers a uh, something that Laban really can't refuse. He says seven years, which was an incredibly long time for him to serve for Rachel. And Laban, Laban says, and listen to his answer. It's, it's very carefully worded. He says, well, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, 
What did he not say? He didn't say yes, necessarily. It's very carefully worded. He says, well, that's a good plan. It's better than any other options, but he doesn't say yes at this point. Then Jacob serves the seven years, and it says that it seemed to him just a few days because of the love that he has for Rachel. And again, that word love is a word that can also just describe a physical desire, and you kind of see that. The next scene is, is a very uncomfortable scene. I'm just going to kind of talk about it in very broad, general terms here. But whenever Jacob comes to Laban, his words, are, again, are very forceful. He says, give me my wife that I might go into her, for my time is completed. And so there's a, an aggressiveness to his demand here. And Laban gathers all the people together. There's this feast, there's this celebration, and then there's this deception at night, he brings his other daughter instead of Rachel and gives her to Jacob. And the question, of course, that we have is how in the world does it take until the morning for Jacob to realize that it's the wrong daughter? And there's several explanations for this. She had a veil on. She, perhaps Jacob was inebriated from, inebriated from the, the, the drinking and the feasting and all those things. But there's also a sense of unease, Right? There's a sense of unease among us as we, we think about what there, there probably wasn't a lot of conversation going on here. He didn't talk with her. There wasn't a, a oneness of relationship. And Jacob, in the morning, after having been deceived in a similar way in which he deceived his father, his senses also deceived, he comes to Laban. The text tells us, behold, it was Leah. Jacob says to Laban, what is this you've done to me? What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban says, look, this isn't how it's done in our country. Complete the week of this one, this week of feasting, and then I'll give you the other in return. And Jacob agrees. What has happened here? It's something disturbing. It's something terrible. The deceiver, Jacob, has been deceived by his uncle, and Jacob, again, as, as he looks at the end of his life, is going to look back on this event as part of God shepherding him. God is going to, to lovingly discipline me and Jacob to prevent us from falling away and to prepare us for heaven. But, but here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest that this, this incident in Jacob's life is not outside of God's control. Just as we sang earlier about, you know, Savior like a shepherd, lead me. God is a shepherd here leading Jacob and providing for him. I want us to ask some questions together now. I want us to ask, us some question, ask ourselves some questions to help us as we try to discern whether or not God is disciplining us and some questions that I think will help us learn from God's discipline. Because how terrible would it be for God and his love to be disciplining us, to be training us, to be trying to correct us, and us to be completely blind to it, and even when we are aware of it, refuse to learn from it. So I want to ask myself and help you ask yourself five questions to help us discern and learn from God's discipline. Here's the first one. As we encounter a difficult circumstance, I want to know, hey, is this God's hand of discipline on me? Here's the first question. Number one, why? Why is God allowing this person or circumstance to harm me? As we encounter a difficult circumstance, as we encounter a person who's harming us, what we understand is we see that God is a sovereign God throughout Scripture. We recognize that this isn't outside God, God's control. God is allowing, indeed, you could use the word, God is appointing this person or circumstance in my life. And so I think a very helpful question for us to ask is why? 
oftentimes we are able to ask this question, um, what's wrong with this person, <laughs> right? And we kind of stop the questioning there. We, we kind of think, what, what, what on earth is possessing this person to do this to me? And so Jacob could have asked that question of Laban here. Here's a, a terrible person. Laban is a person, and we're going to see this as we continue to look at the story of Laban. Laban is a person who abuses people and relationships. He doesn't respect his daughters. He doesn't respect his nephew. He doesn't have great regard for his sons. Laban is a person who takes advantage of relationships. He takes advantage of people. He is not a pleasant person. And it could have been easy for Jacob just to say, and, and he does struggle with this, just to say, man, this guy is a jerk. I can't believe that this guy is in my life. And, and throughout Scripture, we see people whom God is disciplining sometimes fail to understand that God is disciplining them because they are so focused on the terribleness of the person that God is using. So, for example, in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk the prophet is, is complaining to God about the wickedness of the people of Judah. And he says, look, they're, they're, they're wicked, wicked people, guilty men whose might is their God. And, and or this is a God re- replying to Habakkuk. And he, he talks about how, how God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to use the, the Chaldeans to, to discipline Israel and to discipline Judah. And Habakkuk, when he hears that God is going to use the evil people, the Chaldeans, he says, no, 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 no. God, are you, you kidding me? You're the everlasting one, O Lord my God. You're my holy one. We won't die. O Lord, you've ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. But you're of, of pure eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Why, how would you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And you see Habakkuk struggle there? He's like, God, I know we got issues. I, I know. I just, you know, I just mentioned the issues to, the, to you. So I, I know that we in Judah have issues, but surely you're not going to use those people to discipline us because, I mean, as bad as we are, they're even worse. And so here's what, brothers and sisters, here's what I think is a very helpful question for us to ask ourselves as we find ourselves in a situation where someone is treating us wrongly or circumstance just doesn't seem fair. The question we ask ourselves is, is why? Why is God allowing, why is God appointing this person or circumstance to harm me? I know that it is not outside of, of God's control here. As a parent, one of the most difficult things is what I call the, the sorting of the wrongs, right? You hear a child, and, and this child is yelling at another child, and, and it's just, you know, boy, that is not kind things to say. That's not a kind way to talk. And you go and you try to, to ascertain what happened, and you realize that, that this child said something, did say something really mean, but the reason they did it was because this child did this, and this child did this, because this child, and you just, boy, you just, you don't know how to sort it all out. So as a parent, your child looks at you and, you, and, and they are so convinced of their rightness and, and they tell you, uh, you know, Father, I'm worried about the soul of my sibling. I mean, they're so, it's so dark and wretched. Right? That can be our temptation as well. We can be so consumed as we think about how terrible the other person is, how terrible the circumstance, how unjust it is that we fail to see, oh, God is doing this. God is behind this. God has a purpose in this. And perhaps it's a purpose of discipline. As I was thinking about this in, in my own life, I, 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 thought of, I thought of this. You know, my pride and my self-righteousness can prevent me from seeing 
God's hand at work as he uses other people to, to challenge and discipline me. As I was thinking about it, I thought, well, what are my goals? As I think about those who've wronged me, what are my goals in a situation like this? And let me give you, this may help you, this, this may, you may not find this helpful, but let me give you five goals as we think about why is God allowing this person or circumstance to harm me. Let me give you five goals when you find yourself in a situation in which someone is, is treating you wrongly. Here, here's one goal. One goal would be the challenge to see the struggle as primarily spiritual. To see this as a spiritual struggle. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It says we, we, we struggle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so as I, I encounter a person, Paul tells Timothy the same thing. He talks about people who have been deceived and, and uh, held, held captive to, to do uh, the, the will of the enemy. And so when I encounter a person who is treating me, who's yelling at me, who's handling a situation in an unjust way, my temptation can be to see it as a as them opposing me and this, this, this opposition to me and, and them being my enemy and my challenge in a situation like this and perhaps God's hand of discipline on me is the challenge to see it as a spiritual struggle and the challenge is that, that I respond in a spiritual way and I understand if indeed this person does have a sin issue that I see God's, God's got to work there. God's has to work there. Another goal, another goal, can I return good for evil? Can I return good for evil? 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. So can I return good for evil? A third, can I see that, in other words, uh, number one, can I see the struggle is primarily spiritual? Number two, can I return good for evil? Number three, can I increase my trust in God? That's a goal, to increase my trust in God. 2 Corinthians 1.9 talks about how suffering causes us to rely on God who raises the dead. Verse 10 says, On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So a goal would be, when I find myself in a situation like this, would be to increase my trust in God. A fourth goal would be to grow in biblical love for my enemies. To grow in biblical love for my enemies. Luke 6, 27 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. And so as I think about a person who is in my life, I ask myself this question, why is God allowing this person or circumstance to harm me? If I can't say that I see the struggle as spiritual, if I can't say that I'm consistently returning good for evil, if I can't say that I'm increasing my trust in God, if I can't say that I'm growing in my biblical love for my enemy, and then finally, if I can't say that I'm manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in this circumstance, that's the fifth goal, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. If I can't say that I'm doing those things, then, then that's a clue that God's using this to discipline me. If I can't say that I'm where I need to be spiritually in terms of handling adversity, then I need to say that this person has been appointed by God to discipline me in this area. I need to see the struggle as spiritual, return, evil for, uh, return good for evil, increase my trust in God, grow in my biblical love for my enemies, sacrificially caring for them, 
and manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If those things aren't exuding from me in that circumstance, then I, I need some discipline. I'm not where I need to be. That's the first question. Here's a second question to help you and me as we try to discern God's hand at work in our life. Question number two is what I'm experiencing an obvious consequence of sin? Is what I'm experiencing an obvious consequence of sin? Jacob believes in his own self-sufficiency. He believes in his intelligence. He believes in his power. He believes in his strength and his, his pride and his self-sufficiency get him into trouble. Jacob, like his brother Esau, falls victim to his, I believe, his physical appetites here. He is just ravenous, and these physical desires make him reckless and foolish as he trusts in his own self-sufficiency, and he suffers the consequences of it. Now, again, this is so easy to spot in other people, right? We encounter another person, and they tell us about the thing that they're struggling in their life, and we say, boy, I can really see why you're struggling in that area in your life because of what you've done. So we obviously can see the cause and effect in other people's circumstances, and it's very easy to spot it in others, but the challenge is to look at our own lives and say, okay, the, the situation that I find myself in, this, this struggle in this relationship, is it an obvious consequence of, of sin? Perhaps there's been some, some foolish financial decisions that I, I've made. I've been very materialistic, and then I find myself in a situation in which I'm, I'm struggling with some relationships based on finances, and, and it's, it's just an obvious consequence. Is what I'm experiencing an obvious consequence of sin? I think that's an important question to ask ourselves as we find ourselves in a difficult situation, in a tough circumstance, in a place where perhaps God is disciplining us. Now, here's what I would encourage you with as you think about that. Maybe you find yourself in a situation and say, okay, clearly, um, clearly this circumstance is a result of this sin. I made a bad decision, and, and now I'm facing the, this consequence. Does that, mean, does that mean it's over, you know? Does that mean I'm just going to have to deal with this forever? And here's my encouragement to you. My encouragement would be to, to understand the difference between God's judgment and his discipline. That should be a very encouraging thing. Think again about that passage in, in Hebrews 12. Uh, he says that it's for our good. We want to share in his holiness. And, and he describes it as momentary. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it's going to, to yield something. It's going to yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, God's purpose in discipline is never condemnation. In other words, God's purpose in disciplining us is, is to train us, to make us more righteous. It's not to cause us to, to suffer for eternity. Here's what the believer should, should think about when he or she faces God's discipline and recognizes, boy, this is a consequence of sin. We need to return to the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel calls us to recognize the reality that we're sinners, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he suffered the entire penalty for every sin that we've ever committed or ever will commit. God has, has himself and in in, uh, God the Son has borne every penalty for sin that we could possibly endure. 
And so as I find myself in a difficult situation that is the, the consequence of sin, I remember the gospel. I say, I've, I've trusted in Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. This sin has been forgiven. I'm suffering the consequences for what I've done so that God can train me in a loving way. And so what do I do? I, I repent. I repent. What is repentance? A lot of things we've said about repentance, but repentance can also, we can understand it this way. I, I turn from sin. I, I put off sin. I say, okay, this this thing that I've been doing is sinful. I'm no longer going to do it, and I'm going to put on Christ. I'm going to, to actively work to, to no longer engage in this activity. I'm going to replace it with something else in Christ, as I find myself in Christ. Ephesians talks about the, the thief. He says, let him who steals steal no longer. So you, you put off stealing, and then what do you do? Let, let, rather, let him work with his hands. They so can have something to give to those in need. What is that? That's putting off who I used to be, turning from that, putting on Christ. When I find myself in a situation which God is disciplining me, when I'm facing the consequence of sin, what do I do? I put on Christ. I trust in him. I turn from sin and put on Christ and allow Christ to exhibit new behaviors through me. Here's the third question. Here's the third question for us to ask ourselves. Is the hurt I'm experiencing similar to the pain I've caused others? Is the hurt I'm experiencing similar to the pain I've caused others? This is a very important question for us to ask as we think about God at work in our lives. Jacob should have caught it, right? (laughs) He should have caught it. I mean, look at the parallels to what he had done. Laban kisses Jacob. Jacob kissed his father whenever he was deceiving him. There's a conflict about the old, older sibling and the younger sibling. Both situations involve physical appetites exploited for gain. I mean, Laban sees Jacob and he sees how much he wants his daughter and so he exploits it for his gain. Jacob sees how much Esau wants the, 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 the stew and so he exploits that and his deception of, of, of his father as well. He sees his father's physical appetites in both the situation with Jacob and his father and Laban with Jacob. The senses are fooled. The, the eyesight doesn't, doesn't work the way it should. The, the sense of smell and, and, and hearing, all those things, all the senses are fooled, and there's deception for, the, for a prize in both situations. There's the questions at the end. You know, what has he done, says Esau? Uh, uh, Isaac trembles in the story where he is deceived. And, and here Jacob says, what, do you, what have you done to his, to his uncle? Why have you deceived me? And there, there's the same bitterness of fruit. Jacob, as he comes to the end of the story, should have said, boy, this, this hurt that I'm experiencing, this pain that I'm experiencing through deception is, is exactly like the pain that I've caused other people. It's very hard. It's very hard to see this in ourselves. It's easy to see it in other people, right? Again. Sometimes I think, uh, I think we have a conception of like Christian karma, right? And this is, this is not what we're talking about here, but sometimes we have this idea of Christian karma. And as Christians, we think, well, um, because of people's actions, God's going to cause them to reap what they sow in the sense that, that what goes around comes around. So we're going to see the person who... Has, does this, is going to have this happen to them. And, and, and I'd be careful not to understand this point in, in, in that light. You see, karma removes grace from the equation. And, and brothers and sisters, the, the discipline of God is not judgment. It's not cold karma. The, the discipline of God is lovingly constructive, right? The goal 
here is to look at myself, not others. And again, it can be very, very hard to discern, very hard to think very carefully. Is what I'm going through similar to what I've caused others? I was talking to some pastors, and um, I've already started the sentence, so I have to finish it. <laughs> it's a little too transparent, perhaps. But I was talking to some, I would never say this, but some other pastors, <laughs> They were, talking about, um, they were talking about some difficult circumstances that, that people in their, their church had put them through. And, and in all seriousness, God's been very gracious to me, as I've told you many times. I have very, very few uh, hard situations at Bethany Community. But they were talking about some hard situations that people in their church had put them in, right? And then what had happened in, the, in their life, the, the people who had done bad things to them, the things that had happened to them, and there was almost a sense of, God took care of them because bad things happened to them. It's very easy to see ourselves as the righteous ones. People do bad things to me and bad things happen to them and, and I, hope they get, I hope they learn their lesson. What I would encourage us with, again, is, is to turn inward. As we find ourselves in difficult circumstance, to ask, and I think it's so, this is such, I, I tried to, to think through what examples I could give here, and all the examples seemed a little too close to home or, or a little too pointed, but just so often it's easy for us, it's easy for us to see how another person's actions are similar to the actions that they're upset that someone else is doing to them. So the person gets angry because this person is an angry person. The person uh, stretches the truth and they're upset about another person who stretches the truth. And my encouragement would be, again, look inward. Pray that God would reveal to you the areas in which you need to change. Here's a fourth question to ask. A fourth question, is God frustrating my plans because he's, he's keeping my feet from evil? Is God frustrating my plans because he's keeping my feet from evil? You know, God had plans for Jacob. And if Jacob had been able to move very quickly here, perhaps he would have continued down a path that would have resulted in more and more sin. We recognize here as we encounter Jacob that he is not a person who's wise. He's not a person who's thinking carefully. He's not a person who is uh, understanding rightly the promises of God and the covenant of God. He's a person who needs some work. And if God had just allowed Jacob to go, uh, who knows what would have happened. So as we think about God's plans, we, we ask ourselves this. Perhaps God is... Perhaps God is moving us more slowly and frustrating my plans because he's keeping me from further evil. We look at the book of Haggai, and in the book of Haggai, the people are, are pursuing wickedness, and God frustrates their plans. He doesn't allow them to, to build their homes. They're, it says your, your purses have like holes in them. The money just kind of flows through them, and the reason is because you haven't considered your ways. Put your heart on the road. Think about what's going on. Consider your ways. Is God frustrating your plans right now because you're pursuing evil? Maybe there's a situation in terms of being promoted at work, and you're, well, I just want this promotion, and the plans are being frustrated, and really God is keeping you from, from pursuing a lifestyle that is not going to bring you joy. Or perhaps there's a situation, a relationship, that well, I just wish this relationship would work out, and God is, God is frustrating those plans. It's not happening the way you were hoping to, and, and that really that is, God is restraining you right now from evil. Maybe there is a, a family situation that's not being resolved, and you just want it to kind of go away, and God isn't allowing it to go away because he wants to force you to work through it. 
Is God frustrating your plans because he is preventing you from pursuing evil? I think that is an important question to ask ourselves when we find ourselves facing God's discipline. And then here's, here's the last question. Is God slowing me down because I haven't yet learned what he wants me to learn? You know, God has literally all the time in the world. God is in no hurry. And God in his love for you will take all the time he needs. And perhaps one of the reasons that things are not moving more quickly for you is because we haven't, you haven't yet learned what he wants you to learn. Seven years is a long time. Fourteen years is an even longer time. Ultimately, Jacob is going to be with Laban for, for 20 years. Can you imagine 20 years with an incredibly unreasonable boss <laughs> who's also a family member? It's a long, long time that God spends working on Jacob through Laban. And it's not a pleasant time for Jacob. Yet, what does Jacob say in Genesis 48? The Lord was my shepherd through it. He was always with me. Jacob needed every minute of those 20 years, right? I've mentioned this before, but God has, has used difficult circumstances in my life often to slow me down because I haven't yet learned what he wanted me to learn. Think about it. I've mentioned this before. When I was on staff at Bethany Baptist Church, my, my desire was to, to plant this church, and, and we, we bought the property to purchase. We, we purchased the property to plant the church in 2005, and we didn't plant until 2008, and that seemed like a ridiculously long time to me. You know, we were ready in 2004. We were talking about 2004, purchase the land in 2005, and then I'm, you know, 2006 goes by, 2007, why aren't we planting this church? And as I look back on it, as I think about what God did in my life, uh, I thank God constantly for his hand of discipline on me during those years to, to slow me down. During those years, I just kind of was thinking through this. It was just roadblock after roadblock to planting the church. And, but during that time, we began the orphan care ministry. We, we learned submission to, the, to elders. I started some education. I, I spent time with, with Pastor Rich and other pastors in which I learned things about ministry that I would have never learned apart from that, that time with people wiser than me. I deepened other relationships. And I just think over and over again about the things that are bearing fruit in my ministry now took place during that, that period of time in which God disciplined me. God is gracious to us, right? God is gracious to us. God gives us Labans. He gives us people in our lives who are going to slow us down, who are going to discipline us, who are going to be unreasonable. He uses those as instruments to make us more and more like him, to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus. He does it because he loves us. My encouragement to you would be to trust in the gospel, to trust in the person of Jesus Christ this morning, and as you do so, continue to see as you are in him, God's work in you to make you more like his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news, this, this, this idea that we see here that you are at work within us, that you have a reason for the things in which you are, you are placing us, the situations that we're going through. And Father, again, I know that there are many people here who are going through difficult circumstances that are not your discipline. 
that are not your discipline, that they're just simply the results of living in a fallen world. And I pray that your, your peace and comfort would be on them this morning, that they would continue to trust in you and that you would use this in their life as well. But then, Father, I know that there are some of us who are encountering your, your loving hand of discipline right now to train us and to mold us. And so, Father, for those of us who are in that situation, shape us, help our hearts to be soft, help us to receive your correction, help us to profit by it. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.